Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'd like to begin today by thanking fellow saloners, Theo the Leo, Keech, and hey, clever cartoon, by the way, Keech, Tlac P, Brian M, and Owl C, whose uh, donations are helping to offset some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. So I thank you all very much. Also, I'd like to thank Joe Rogan for having me as a guest on his show last week. As a result, I suspect that uh, there are some newcomers here in the salon today. And the reason that I suspect this is because, uh, well, after my appearance on Joe's show, I acquired uh, over a thousand new followers on Twitter. Uh, And my Twitter handle, by the way, is PsychedelicLozo, L-O-Z-O, all one word. So, for our new fellow saloners, I thought that maybe I should give you a brief overview of what these podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are all about. The format is quite simple. The main feature is a recorded talk, or uh, the occasional interview, uh, with people who are uh, in some way associated with what I like to think of as the worldwide psychedelic community. And the reason I know that there is, in fact, such a community is that in the eight plus years that I've been doing these podcasts, we've reached over a million unique listeners in uh, more than a hundred countries. So uh, welcome to our community. Now, a good many of the talks that I've featured in these podcasts are by Terrence McKenna and by Dr. Timothy Leary. Many of the others were uh, featured speakers at the Mind States conferences or from the Palenque Norte lecture series that takes place at the Burning Man Festival each year. And if you go to our program notes blog, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us, you'll see a listing of over a hundred categories that these talks fall into, including the names of the speakers. And uh, this is my 379th podcast, and hopefully their quality has improved, in case you are (laughs) listening to some of the early ones. Uh, I never really thought I'd still be doing these podcasts in the beginning, and so for the first hundred or so, I was still using a $15 headset microphone. And while I've got a little better mic now, I'm still doing these podcasts in the uh, little spare room I use as an office. Right now, I'm in a period of uh, playing a couple of talks from the 2013 Palenque Norte lectures, followed by a couple talks by McKenna or others. And uh, today, I'm going to feature a talk that is uh, thus far unique here in the salon. As you can tell by the title, it's about androgyny and features the delightful Jay Starfox. In just a moment, you're going to hear their story, and I hope that you'll not only give this talk your attention right now, but after you've listened to it with me, uh, well, I hope that you'll continue to give some thought to what they have to say about ways in which you can make this world a, a little better place for our friends, relatives, neighbors, and co-workers who are working through their own gender issues. So, without any further ado, here is Christopher Peza introducing Jay Starfox at Palenque Norte 2013. And uh, as you'll notice, there were places in which uh, someone in the audience was either asking a question or commenting, but unfortunately their voices weren't picked up by the recording system, and so I had to cut those silent gaps out. Now here is Pez. All right, up next we have Jay Starfox. And uh, they are awesome. I just have to say that I've been working with Jay for the last week and a half, and Jay actually helped construct this entire tent structure that you're now sitting in (laughs) and even sacrificed one of her fingers to a 20-pound sledgehammer in the process. But uh, uh, they are such a rock star, and I'm really excited for, for this talk. So without further ado, here's Jay. Thank you, Pez. Um, So I got the inspiration to do a talk about divine androgyny because I was here at Burning Man last year and I was like, divine masculine, divine feminine, great. What about everybody else? (laughs) Um, And and my friend, I was like, my friend Trouble said, well, you should do it. Uh, and, and so that was my dream. And then at the Psychedelic Science Conference in April, I met... Annie and Pez and found out about this camp and 
have just been having a ball ever since then. And I was like, you have the camp for the talk that I need to give. Um, so that's been just like a really thrilling thing in my life. Um, and I've listened to a lot of the talks that were done in this camp at Palenque Norte last year. Um, they're all on the Psychedelic Salon. I highly recommend them. And one of the things I love about a lot of those talks is when people are discussing their own life experiences. So that's one of the things I'm going to bring into this is talking about my own life and what the work that I do every day um, in loud and quiet ways. Um, another big inspiration for me has been Tibetan Buddhism, which is a tradition that's really opened itself up to white Westerners like myself and most of us in this room and said this is where this tradition can now do a lot of benefit and receive a lot of benefit. So I feel really comfortable engaging with those ideas. And I'd like to start us off with a visualization from Tibetan Buddhism, um, which uses a lot of imaginative meditation. So this idea that if you can visualize where you're going, you'll do a better job of getting there more quickly and more fully, which contrasts with a lot of other meditation practices, and it's something that I think is pretty nifty. Um, so if y'all will close your eyes, if that feels comfortable, and take a couple breaths and kind of slow it down, and hear the music in the background, like that's part of it. And, and picture in your mind's eye an object, something nounish, that for you symbolizes an energy that is masculine, however that is for you. Um, it could be power, it could be destruction, it could be, I don't know, it could, phallic, however that goes for you. Um, and picture it, get it in three dimensions, turn it around, really see this noun from all sides. Get a sense of it. Does it what does it smell like? Is it hot? Is it cold? And breathe it in a little bit. Feel that energy that comes off it. Whoa. And now kind of like put it off to the side. You know, you're going you're gonna to shift your attention a little and you're going to find something that is again, kind of a noun, an object that is both complementary and opposite the way that we think of the feminine often. Something flowing, creative, gentle, whatever, whatever it is, it, you know, however you associate that idea. Find an, an object that you can imbue with that and again, kind of fill it in, look at it from all sides, really get a sense of it. Breathe it in. And now take your masculine object, your feminine object, and like mash them together. Let them, maybe it's conjugal, maybe it's improbable or nonsensical. And, and then like really get that combination, that blending, and feel the energy that comes off of that one. Breathe it in. And that, for me, that energy, it flows it's a unity, it's complementary. It's not really masculine or feminine. It's not halfway between them. It's something else entirely. And it, it changes from moment to moment depending on your perspective. It could have one or the other. This I, I think is like a big part of androgyny, this energy of unity. And so that's really powerful. I invite you all to open your eyes or keep them closed as suits you. And thanks for sharing that with me. Um, in Tibetan Buddhism, the Buddha deity is often envisioned as Buddha and consort, intertwined, commingled, as one being with a variety of gendered characteristics. Um, similarly, in Hinduism would be Shiva Shakti. Um, and so this, this unity that I feel from androgyny 
I think has a great analogy to the unity that is sort of everything. There's this saying like hell is other people, which I like to kind of unpackage as hell is othering people. You are in a mind state resembling hell when you are treating other people as separate from you. But if you acknowledge our interconnection, you've got a doorway into a whole other way of experiencing people and yourself. Um, and I have found a lot of that energy has been available to me as I engage in a gender transition. I've been on testosterone for five months, um, and it's been a real pleasure, maybe not every single day. Usually on Tuesdays I'm pretty crabby because that's the day before my next injection. Um, so today I'm feeling pretty good. I had it this morning. Um, and I kind of have realized that transitioning is a like multi-year-long process of psycho-spiritual death and rebirth. Um, and I'm really glad I've had a few 8 to 10 hour practices of psycho-spiritual death and rebirth. Um, it's been really uh, a resource for me um, to learn how to let go of all of my checks on what my body is doing and how it's functioning and how my mind reacts to different stimuli. For example, uh, when estrogen is your primary hormone and you experience a stress or panic response, the kind of neurochemical cascade results in the emotion of sadness and frustration. Whereas if testosterone is the dominant hormone in your system and you experience a stress or panic response, the dominant emotion that you'll feel from that kind of different neurochemical cascade is anger. So instead of getting upset and crying, now I want to go and like make something happen. <laughs> That's been like really nice because I had no idea what was going on with me before. Um, I don't really have a typical trans narrative. I didn't, when I was three years old, I wasn't like, I'm a boy. Actually, when I was four, I loved wearing dresses. Um, and I'm still pretty cool on dresses. Um, and this is like my parents give me endless shit about, oh, but you loved wearing dresses when you were four. I look at my dad very seriously, and I say, I'm the kind of guy that liked wearing dresses when they were four. And he just sits there and squirms in his seat. He's a really dignified guy, a doctor in his 60s, and I've got him pinned. All of the transphobia and homophobia that he's got locked up inside him because he's part of our culture. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking him right in the eyes and I'm telling him that if he's going to like keep having me in his life, he's got to work through that. And that's been really big. And like, a lot of people will say, oh, you can't transition if you don't have X and X or whatever. And mm, no, it's not true. Um, bit of a fun technical fact. In 2010, the World Professional Association of Transgender Health changed their standards of care such that uh, informed consent is all that a physician needs to do in order to give you hormones for a gender transition. You don't need to see a psychiatrist. If your doctor tells you you need therapy, find a better doctor. So another really entertaining thing in our society that a dear friend of mine who couldn't come to the burn this year because they just got a new vagina um, told me about uh, is this idea of Freud, right? Freud is kind of the basis for a great deal of our psychology and analysis and therapy and a lot of his stuff is pretty weird if you kind of get into it and this great idea that my dear friend told me about was uh so Freud is seeing all of these female assigned folks who are hysterical and have social dysfunctions and like hate their bodies and want to be their dads and want to kill their moms right does that sound like everybody's problem or does that sound like trans guy problems? I think that there's a fairly good chance that these like socially dysfunctional female assigned folks that Freud was seeing were 
transgender, but there was no word for that. There was no cultural beginning for that. And so a lot of this stuff that Freud called our unconscious, our shadow, is really the trans experience and the pain that trans people feel and the fear around that. And learning about that and thinking about it and thinking about the way that psychiatry and psychology have developed and the ways in which gender is medicalized when it doesn't match what a doctor tells you when you're born and how that kind of shadow work that for three years all of my trips everyone's genitalia would turn into bleeding incisions and I just thought that was what happened to everybody well no no that was kind of like a like a flashing light hey you should pay attention um those kinds of clues are hard to see when all of the like history of psychology tells you that that kind of pain is the pain everybody deals with it doesn't have to be um, there's a lot, uh, a lot to learn from it, but it should be a point of action, not a place to give up. Um, and so I've learned a lot from those feelings I had of dissociation, which were really challenging for me for a long time, not knowing that things I was seeing and feeling and understanding had something to do with part of my life path. And, like, I've had a really challenging build week because everyone I was building this camp with, maybe one or two of them would get my pronoun right uh, once or twice. And that just sends me right out of the present moment. I feel so invisible when that happens. My preferred pronoun is they, by the way, um, although he is fine. Um... And, uh, and, and, and it's like, when I hurt my hand, which Pez mentioned, I didn't even notice. I kept working. And Pez actually had to stop me and be like, hey, hey, Jay, you're bleeding. Like, come here. <laughs> I didn't feel it. I didn't feel it for like a day. Finally, I got out and took a whole night by myself just out in deep playa and was like, come on. You need to, like, get some grounding, like... Don't let what other people say dictate your whole being. And that's a hard, hard thing, especially for trans folks, I think, but for everybody. People see you a certain way. Is it ever possible to show yourself to someone else? It's a huge question I've been experiencing. Like, maybe I'm a tall person trapped in a short person's body. I can't do anything about that. I mean, I'm a fat person stuck in a skinny person's body. I could do something about that. Also cool that I am a manly queer and a transmasculine person, and I can do something about that. Um, and so to open up the world of possibility, when I met my first trans person who came out to me three years ago, I thought that trans meant something a little more like intersex, like that they, I didn't, I didn't know that you could use hormones to change your appearance. I had no conception of that. I grew up in a really rural town about three hours from here. Uh, and I am still healing from that. Much loved all the small town folks. <laughs> I hope you can all come to Portland. It's very nice. Um, and I totally lost my train of thought there. It's, it's another thing I love about Toxic Burning Man. You never quite know where the speaker is at. So you just, just roll with it. <laughs> um, I have this lovely uh, set of notes that I made for myself, except my handwriting is like barely legible right now because I'm right-handed. Um, and so one of the things that I've been doing is learning how to see bodies as beautiful. It's one of the awesome things testosterone does is you get a sex drive, which I'd never really had before. So now, like, people look great. And some of them I might even want to have sex with. <laughs> and that's really cool. Um, because previously I had what I guess you would call demisexual. My sexuality was entirely dependent upon my emotional connection to someone. So I didn't... I saw people as sexually inert unless I was, like, madly in love with them, which made my sexuality have this kind of weird codependent aspect, um, which has gotten a lot better this year. Um, 
And so I've been learning to see bodies in this really special way um, that I think I want to share that vision as part of this talk, which is like, uh, what what is gender would be a question. Um, and I'd love to open that up to start with. Does anybody have any thoughts about defining gender? Raise your hand. Word. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I kind of, lately, my feminist analysis of gender, feminist analysis being one that takes into account systems of power as they relate to colonialism and oppression, um, is that there's kind of three main areas you see gender. There's the personal. So you look inside. When I look inside and I look for my gender, I see like a swirling vortex of fun. <laughs> Some people don't see that, I've learned. Um, and then there's gender as a social phenomenon. You look at people, you see gendered qualities. Did you know that your hairline is gendered? Since I've started testosterone, my hairline has changed. I have this freckle here that you didn't used to be able to see because my hair covered it. But now it's changed. Um, you'll never, almost never see a, you know, a receding peaked hairline on someone who's never had testosterone um, as their dominant hormone after puberty. Um, my voice is gendered. I used to speak much more up here. I don't really do it that well right now. Um, my throat's a little uh, playa happy. Um, your tendons are gendered. Uh, when you have testosterone in your system, your tendons get thicker and tougher. Your muscle density is gendered. Your fat distribution, the shape of your face, this part in particular... Um, you'll hear about facial contouring for trans women, and they call this brow bossing, and they want to reduce that angle. Because you'll notice I have hardly any bump right there, because uh, I didn't have testosterone when I went through puberty um, the first time. <laughs> uh, so, like, things are gendered that you'd never expect just on your body. Um, and then there's clothes and then there's the political domain of gender which has a lot to do with things like distribution of labor um, a really good genderqueer anarchist former housemate of mine introduced me to the idea of a of gendered categories of labor um, so you have productive labor which would be speaking in the speaker series, you have reproductive labor organizing the speaker series. You have productive labor designing and orchestrating the build of the temple. Reproductive labor organizing uh, the opening ceremony for the temple. Productive labor running the big machine that builds the man. Reproductive labor uh, letting people in the gate. If you look all around Burning Man and you're looking at who's doing the big art pieces and whose names are attached to them, it's overwhelmingly names that sound male. If you look at who's working the gates and the coffee shop and who's serving tea in the tea house, it's overwhelmingly names that sound female. So this is a really kind of insidious level of gender as a political category um, and one that probably causes the most suffering because when you have a two-category system. I studied linguistics in college, and I got to write about gender. And when you have a two-category system, you always have a marked and an unmarked category. So the marked category is the non-default. It's less common. So that's why women often feel like a minority, because they're the marked category. If, For example, in French, if you have a group of people and seven of them are perceived and assumed to be women and one of them is perceived and assumed to be male, then you use the male plural to refer to that group of people because masculinity and maleness are unmarked in Western European and North American culture. So that two-class system leads to an unmarked group that gets privilege and power. So that's the feminist analysis of it. And what happens when you start breaking down those two categories 
is that the people in power get scared because it threatens their power. And the people who are dependent upon that power structure, who are in the marked category, also get scared because the system that they know how to navigate and that has at least enabled them to survive, if not supported them, is being threatened. So androgyny, non-binary trans folks, and so on, is really like destabilizing to a lot of political and social categories that are completely normalized for most of the people you'll meet. Uh, I don't expect anyone to see me and expect my pronoun is they unless the person I'm meeting has had an awful lot of training. Just like I wouldn't necessarily expect a cis guy to be all that good at getting his girlfriend to orgasm unless he's had a whole lot of training. <laughs> and lesbians give the best training in that, I've, I've learned. Um, and so the next place I wanted to go is to kind of present some of my ideas about what you can do to activate more divine androgyny in the world, in your life, in organizations that you're involved in. Um, and the first one is like on the personal level. Explore your gender. Make it a place that you frolic, that you be whatever it is. Free yourself to find things that are gendered that you never expected were. Uh, a friend of mine makes this joke. Uh, when you're looking at a crowd and you see somebody who's wearing a vest, has a mohawk, and nose piercings, they're probably genderqueer. That's <laughs> a good one. Um, and uh, so find interesting and odd ways to explore gender. Does being childish wearing brightly colored socks, does that make you feel gendered? Um, does wearing a big trench coat make you feel gendered? What adjectives can go with gender? Um, my favorite adjective for my gender is usually fabulous. Um, and like there are all kinds of words that are gendered or have the potential to be gendered in ways that no one's ever told you they ought to be, so go for it. Um, wear mismatched socks and a really ugly hat. It helps. Um, another thing that you can do is ask people for their pronouns. Like, find the manliest guy and just be like, hey, what's your preferred pronoun? Whoa. Um, and, like, allow for self-definition. If someone doesn't get it, help them. Um, particularly if you don't feel threatened. Because if you're having an experience where you feel threatened, it is not the right time to educate someone. It's time for you to get the hell out of there. It's never your job to educate someone, and it is absolutely never your job to educate someone who's making you feel unsafe. So don't feel bad about it. It's okay. Um, and when you're interacting with someone who you know has like a more nuanced conception of gender, ask them don't assume anything about their bodies. They could have all kinds of words for their body parts that you wouldn't know. And it's really important to honor people's self-ID and self-definitions. And it can be really enriching to explore those and go and learn about cliques and um, girl cock and like the whole range of ways that you can rename your body parts so that you can love them as part of you and share them with somebody who gets that. And that's really cool. Um, and uh, on that note, don't ask anyone ever, no matter how close you are to them, uh, whether they're going to have surgery or what kind of genitalia they have. Never. Don't do it. If you hear someone doing it, tell them not to. If someone wants to volunteer that information, that's great. But, like, don't ask people about their genitalia. It's just not polite. Um, and on a kind of a larger scale, one of my visions is to change the language of organizations to be gender inclusive. So instead of saying this event is open to men and women, you could say this event is open to people of all genders. Um, I've been working with... Uh, a wonderful person who runs the tea house next door 
and um, also helps to coordinate the Women's Visionary Congress. And we worked together to change all of their language so that it did not define gender as anything but a completely open-ended category. Um, and I'm hoping to do that with the Oregon Country Fair in the near future. And I invite all of you to go from the bottom up. It doesn't matter how deeply you are involved in something. Make some noise. Um, and that's kind of what I got to say. Now we do questions. So as sort of what I'll think of is, like, are you asking about an all-women's space? Or so how to invite female-identified people without excluding anyone who is female-identified. Um, you could say feminine of center. Uh, I really like that one. Does anybody else have a way that they like to express uh, categories of gender, particularly for people who are feminine of center, that encourages that kind of comfort? Uh, I have never had my chromosomes tested, um, so I do not know. I've, um, I was uh, female assigned at birth, which means that my, I guess the non-gendered term is lingen, uh, was uh, less than a half inch long at the moment that I popped out. Um, if you're between a half inch and an inch, uh, they'll do corrective surgery to make your genitalia match the way that they perceive, they read your chromosomes. Um, reading the, doing chromosome tests before uh, corrective surgery on intersex babies is pretty new. Before, they would just make it look tidy and female. So that's pretty exciting um, in terms of progress. But still, you can't get consent from a baby, and very few parents are actually brought in by their physician to have it be a real decision-making process. So if you're going to have a child or bring a child into your life, you might try to find a real savvy doctor for that, too. So one of the things I love about the burn is seeing all kinds of gender bending. People who take things from different categories and perceptions and mix them together in like really exciting and unexpected ways so like someone wearing pants with just a huge package and a beautiful flowing shirt and long hair and like big old platform boots and I just love that topsy-turvy feeling and I try to kind of see that all the time and like notice things about people that kind of make them a little bit less black and white and a little bit more approachable for that. And I think um, if you give everybody the opportunity to not be boxed in right away, they'll surprise you. Um, when I, I have some friends I have in on this, and it's something that I practice, um, if I'm talking about a third party who's not present, um, I'll use neutral pronouns for them. Um, so that kind of, I'll, I'll usually only do this with friends who are kind of in on this practice with me because otherwise it gets confusing because <laughs> no one's used to it. Um, but to say, like, I have been working on this with them and, you know, you want to talk about one person, oh, my friend Kaylin is interested in this person and I think they might be really good, but they're such a bro. And, you know, like it really kind of changes the dynamic of a conversation or I have a friend who's single and really looking to date some people. And so I'll be like, oh, I think you might like this person. They're really smart, funny, whatever. Um, and not reveal the gender of the person I'm setting them up on a blind date for. <laughs> and like, that just topsy-turvies all kinds of things. And it also helps you practice. Another good one I heard is practicing uh, songs, singing songs, but inserting non-binary pronouns. So uh, Z here hears is an example of a set of non-binary pronouns, or A-M air, um, they, them, there, another one. Um, and so you sing a song, uh, Skater Boy is a song with a whole lot of pronouns in it, so it's a really easy song to practice with. Um, 
And, and that kind of gets it used to rolling off your tongue. So then when you meet someone new who you're like, what's your preferred pronoun? Because you should always ask that when you meet someone new. Uh, this, this person would be like, oh, Z, thank you for asking. And you'll be so practiced because you've been singing it. <laughs> that one was uh, straight off of Tumblr, which is a really great resource for all things gendery and uh, flame wars. Yeah, there's um, kind of a, a medical history reason for that, which is that um, until the mid-90s, uh, the what were then called the Harry Benjamin Standards of Care um, required a year of therapy f- um, coinciding or followed by a year of real-life experience before a trans person could even access hormones. So you had to go way far out you had to be like I am a man I am so masculine I've always played football whatever Um, or you had to be like I am a girl I've always played with dolls like whatever it is in order just to access hormones um, and that um, up until 2010 you still had to get therapy and convince your therapist that you were really trans Um, and uh, this year we uh, being transgender is no longer a mental illness (laughs) Uh, gender dysphoria is is still considered a mental illness rightfully for the pain that it causes people Um, a phrase um, a nice alternate wording is dysmorphia as opposed to dysphoria so you can kind of reclaim the way that you're experiencing your body it's not that you're freaked out and scared by it it's that it's just not your body. I used to kind of say, like, I feel like space aliens, like, kidnapped me and gave me breast implants. <laughs> it's not, not so much that it's, like, it's not my body. It's just, like, why did they do that? Um, so, you know, on a kind of personal level, dysmorphia might be a better word to use to describe one's experience than dysphoria. And I love spreading the seeds of alternate language. Mm, I think there's a bit of a difference if somebody comes out to you for reasons of you're their employer, uh, for reasons of uh, non-medical concerns, because they're your friend and they like to be open with you. Those are times when I think it's inappropriate to ask about someone's genitalia, just like it would be inappropriate when you're getting close to your friend to just be like... Hey, how hairy are your pubes? It's just, it's like, that's just like, particularly for someone who's dealing with a lot of pain, potentially, um, or for someone for whom that's a really triggering, trauma trigger kind of question, um, it's good to try to be really sensitive. Say you're getting into an intimate relationship with someone who's trans, that would be probably a great time to talk about genitalia and preferences around that. Um, so there's like there's nuance to it, but uh, so much of the time, as soon as I come out to somebody, the first question they ask is, "Well, are you gonna have surgery?" It's none of your business. That's my answer. It's like that's a really personal question, and I don't think that I want to share that right now. Um, and so because like it's a big question and it's a heavy question and it's not one that always has an easy answer and having to be faced with thinking about a part of you that's got such complex and painful feelings so often is just really like exhausting it makes it so that i don't want to talk to people about it so i guess some of that comes from like a personal preference and it's also something that when I go and read about how to be a good ally, that's usually one of the top five things. So I just like to share that wisdom. But I think you have a really good point that closing off a question closes off a whole world of conversation that's really important. Um, I mostly know other trans guys, and there's a fair bit of peer pressure to go on tea in part because it's so easy and so effective and having all of the energy and strength that it gives you and the freedom to wear whatever you want but still get read in a way that is resonant. Um, so there's a lot of like power to that. Um, so there's like a fair bit of peer pressure around that, although I have met some trans folks who haven't done any hormones or surgery and 
often it's a really great choice for them for all kinds of reasons and like that's neat to encounter um so i love that there's all the variety um and i i don't know a whole lot about the trans feminine sort of nuances and peer pressure um so that's about our time um Thank you so much, everybody, for coming and listening to a little ramble and for sharing your thoughts. And uh, I hope to see you queering it up out on the playa. Well, if that doesn't give you enough to think about, I'm going to play a short bit of commentary that took place between me and Joe Rogan on his show the other day. And I think that it nicely fills out this conversation about gender. For those of you who are joining us for the first time because you came here from Joe's show, well, you most likely heard this already. But uh, since his entire show ran to a full four hours, without even a bio break, I should add, well, uh, since it's that long, I thought that I would play this one short soundbite from it to give you an idea of how our conversation went. And I'll put a link to the full program on Joe's site uh, in the program notes for this podcast. Now, uh, here is Joe Rogan on the Joe Rogan Experience, November 19th, 2013. And we'll pick up at a point where Joe and I were discussing a news item from the Middle East that was about stoning homosexuals to death. It's ridiculous. It was from a time when people didn't know any better. Right. The idea that your God wants you to do that is beyond ridiculous. Oh. You know, it's, it's religion is, you know, it's basically superstition when you come down to it. A huge part of it. And I get the idea that I get that people need a higher power or believe in a higher power, 100%. But if you can't see that there's the hand of man and something that tells you that you should stone homosexuals to death, <laughs> you can't see the hand of man in that. You really think that that's the way a god would handle it? Right. Why would a god invent homosexuals in the first place? And if you don't <laughs> think that they're doing that because they're born that way, look, there, I'm sure, have been men who are heterosexual who are like, let's see what this fuss is all about, and went over and did some gay shit. Why not? I'm sure it's, it happened. It's nothing, nothing wrong with that. But the reality of being gay, if you've ever met anybody who's gay, is that most people who are gay always knew it from the time they were born. Now, why would your God create that? Why would your God create someone who is born in a way that makes them, just by nature of existing, you could, you're allowed to stone them to death? You should stone right. them to death. Well, you know, my youngest son is gay. And uh, when he finally came out, I said, well, you know, I've been talking to your sister about this for 10 years and he said <laughs> he said well i knew i was gay that long too he said i just had to get the courage to come out and wow. uh, just last january uh, he got married in washington dc and it was uh, he, he was a uh, kind of a big deal at the kennedy center and so it was a big society wedding and uh, it was an amazing social event with hundreds of people there and you know people from the state department and everywhere and wow and uh, you could you could tell the the tables that were the old established straight people who came just to be polite at first but it turned into such a wonderful party you know we had they had uh, the wedding and then a dinner and then the reception all in the same place and everybody stayed until the thing closed down they were having mainly the old people were watching the young people dance because uh, well my my uh, my son's husband is a, a principal dancer at the uh, Susan Farrell ballet uh, wait a minute a gay ballet dancer this story just doesn't make any sense you don't think there'd be no, well, there's just... one or two <laughs> <laughs> isn't it funny that there's certain like uh, like if you hear guys an interior decorator yeah. <laughs> bam right I mean how many straight dudes I'm sure there are some and they get mad at me saying this right now but I don't know why it is but there's something about there's certain professions and and uh you know but boy is he a hell of a dancer when you <laughs> he's a yeah. good dancer well you know that's always been the rumor about john travolta he's probably not even gay it's probably people are still upset about saturday night fever <laughs> he was too good yeah he was too good it was he changed the way uh people decided to mate but you know if you, mating dances if you want to go to a fun wedding just go to a, a, a same-sex marriage because it's, it's new for them it's something right. you know they're really celebrating something uh, right. for the first time it's a very joyous occasion. Right. They don't feel pressured into it. No. Like, you guys have been together for five years, and he hasn't gotten you a ring. This is bullshit. Right. You need to let him know that this is unacceptable. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, gay guys don't have a girlfriend no, like that. They're, they're doing it out of love. They're, yeah, and uh, they're a wonderful couple. This is it? Where's it? Where is it legal now? How many states is gay marriage Not, legal? I think about fifteen or something like that. Let's uh, find out. It's, it's happening, right? Slowly but surely. Yeah. See, he had just uh, moved to Florida, taken a new job, and they'd already had all these plans, but he couldn't get married in Florida, so they left everything in D.C. Fifteen states um, were same uh, legal same-sex marriage, and. Um, and then there's also more states where 34 that ban same-sex marriage. There's more that ban it. But recently there's wow. been a federal uh, decision. The tax department is going to recognize it no matter what state they live in. This is fascinating, though. There's states where it's banned. It's like they have banned same-sex marriages. <laughs> 34 of them. That's amazing. Really had to go out of the way there, didn't they? But it's so stupid. It's so stupid. It's hard to believe. It's so stupid that people yeah. in this day and age decide what two people can't do because of their sex. Yeah. Like yeah. The, it's, if she, if yeah. marriage is legal, okay, and I'm not sure it should be, but if marriage is legal, why shouldn't it be legal for gay people? Like it, that's you know, so, it's just so sensible. It's so dumb. And it's such a weird thing to get behind. It's like, what's your end game here? Yeah. I don't understand how you're getting behind. Anybody would be getting behind this. Outside of some crazy religious belief, you've lost me. Like, yeah, wh what do you care? Yeah, what do you care? Yeah. And the idea that somehow or another it's going to eventually cost us money. There's going to tax There's some stupid arguments that you uh. see the convoluted logic about why people being gay and getting married would make any difference. Or cost any more or less than right. them not getting married, or them, you know, or straight people getting. What, the, what, the, what studies are you talking about? Yeah. What do you, you know, who's well, doing and, studies on this? And these homophobes that are just insane. For, you know? And for what? Right? They're saying, you know, that that uh, gay marriage or same sex marriage now is going to cause uh, everybody to go out and rape children. I mean, they're making this stuff up. That's just. Unbelievable. If I, that's maybe like disinformation. Maybe like the mm -hmm. um, maybe the the gay marriage people who are pro gay marriage are saying shit like that <laughs> just to make it such a retarded argument. <laughs> it's well, like it's really working. <laughs> clever move. You know, it is. It is. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those weird things where I I can't believe it's still around. It's like I remember when I was a kid. I've told this story, but in the um, the interest of this particular discussion, when I was like I guess I was about eleven years old, and I moved from San Francisco to Florida. And there's a lot of things that I didn't know. San Francisco was incredibly open-minded. And I, re I really remember being very aware of the difference immediately upon moving to, uh, to Florida. Because I had a friend, his friend his, a Cuban friend. His name was Candy. And his dad, Can Candy Escadito or something like that. It's a crazy last name. I forget his last name. But his dad was screaming and yelling, slamming the newspaper on the table. I can't believe this shit. And I was like, uh, you know, trying to figure out what was going on, you know. And I was like, what's your dad mad at? And he goes like, dad, what are you mad at? He's like, they're letting fags get married. Oh, you believe this shit? They're going to let those homos marry each other. He was mad. He was throwing the newspaper Jeez. down. I was 11. And I was like, what a silly man you are. You're a grown man. And this is something that, uh, that bothers you and concerns you. I remember thinking at an 11-year-old boy, like, wow, there's a lot of weak-ass bitches out there posing as men. Like, you dummy. Yeah. Like, what do you care? Were you, were you a tough guy because you care that two guys want to kiss each other? Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? It's just so stupid. It's such a dumb thing to get behind. It should have been normal a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. When I was a kid, I lived in San Francisco next to this gay couple, this uh, black guy and his boyfriend, this white dude. And my aunt used to go down there, and they would smoke pot and play bongos naked. They would all get together. I was like fucking seven. They would all, they would all go next door to the gay couple's house. It was to totally, completely normal. It was like, there's a black guy, there's an Asian guy, there's a gay guy. It's like another wow. guy. It's like, it's no big deal. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. No, it's no big deal. And uh, while I should probably say something serious right here, <laughs> all I can think of is a little seven-year-old version of Joe Rogan surrounded by naked pot smokers playing bongo drums. <laughs> no wonder he's become such a unique person, truly uh, one of a kind. And if I'm uh, correct here, I think that it was just a few days ago that Illinois, my home state, became the 16th state to legalize same-sex marriage. Way to go, Illinois! Now, one other thing that uh, Joe and I talked about was the Occupy movement, and while I thought that I was talking about a hypothetical overall Phase 1 plan for the movement, I was uh, quite surprised to hear from Cecilia, who sent me some links dealing with that very topic. 
and uh, I'm happy to find that my hunch was right. And I'll post those two links in the uh, program notes, and I think you'll find them both very interesting. Now, before I go, it uh, seems like a good idea to pass this along. I'm not sure why, but just uh, felt fun. It's a list of the top ten cities to live in while you're young. And uh, I suspect that you're going to be surprised by a couple of them, uh, as I was. So here are the supposedly ten most youthful cities in the world. Number ten, Seoul. Number nine, Tokyo. Eight, Los Angeles. Seven, London. Six, Chicago. Five, Paris. Four, Dallas. Three, New York City. Two, Berlin. And number one was Toronto. And how could it not be Toronto with uh, that entertaining mayor? (laughs) Why, even watching the news should be fun in Toronto. And all kidding aside, uh, after my second visit to Toronto uh, many years ago, I tried everything I could think of to get the corporation I was working for at the time to transfer me there. It's a truly wonderful place. And happily, uh, number six, Chicago is uh, where I was born and raised. Or as the Clancy brothers would say, where I was bred and buttered. (laughs) And while I've actually had more fun in number seven, London, which I agree is also uh, more fun than number eight, L.A., the only uh, one of the other cities in that list that I've lived in is number four, Dallas. And I suspect that a lot of people are wondering about that, uh, but I'm not one of them. In uh, our conversation uh, between Joe and I the other day, we talked some about my days in Dallas and how that city actually was ground zero for MDMA, or ecstasy, to uh, hit the streets, as opposed to being primarily used on the therapist's couch as it was taking place on the West Coast. But becoming a street drug is something that you would uh, think could happen almost anywhere other than Dallas. Uh, You know, Dallas is the city where a president was murdered and is overtly, as in in in-your-face, religious. Well, the uh, producers of The Stark Project, which is a documentary film about the, well, the most exciting club of its day, and uh, it was located in Dallas. Well, they came by and recorded an interview with me about those days in Dallas and titled it Confessions of an Ecstasy Advocate. And uh, you can watch it on Vimeo via a link on the uh, Salon's Program Notes blog. But since there's a big family holiday approaching here in the States, I've asked the producers for permission to podcast the audio portion of that interview so as to uh, give our fellow Saloners who want to come out of the psychedelic closet at their family gatherings, uh, a little something they can play to get the conversation started. Of course, uh, this isn't going to be any help for uh, someone coming out of another type of a closet, only this scary one labeled drug user. And uh, that podcast isn't going to be very long, just a little over the 29 minutes of the interview, and I'll be posting it uh, by the close of the day tomorrow. But for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>